Hi, I'm Dr. Janice Morrow. Thanks for joining us for another episode of American Mood Swings, where we talk about the brain and all things related to mental health. Welcome. And my guest today is Sean Perry with We Are Hope. Um, he's based in Vermont, and I heard about Sean at CNN. For those of you who watch CNN, does a Heroes of the Year uh, they're nominated by their peers or community members, and they're people doing really outstanding and remarkable things uh, for the good of mankind and, and nonprofits, and it'll really restore your faith in, in humanity. So for anybody who has not ever watched this, it's a, it's, it's a must-watch, feel-good end-of-the-year thing, especially after all the things we're doing. So that's how I heard about Sean, and I reached out, and he's here with us today to talk about We Are Hope. And his mission, and I, there's, you know, I'm going to just give the stage to him. Yeah, sure. Well, thank you. Um, you know, I, uh, well, I'm 45 years old. Um, I started my career, if you will, <laughs> my life's work a little bit late in life. Um, I had always been drawn to wanting to support people and, and help people. That's something I always wanted to do. I remember, you know, being a young kid, and as I was getting ready to go into high school being asked like, well, you know, they ask, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up, you know, type of questions. And I said, I want to be a psychologist, right? Like that's legit what I wanted to do. And there was this program called vocational agriculture, which seemed to me at the time, like this really cool uh, program that I can get into. So I thought, ah, well, I'll do that, you know? And I mean, I figured, you know, well, being a psychologist, you know, that's going to, I'm not going to do that in high school. So, you know, I'll take some, some, uh, some classes within, um, within school that I could take psychology and things like that. But I wanted to do this vocational agriculture because I got a chance to work with uh, pets, you know, and, and I was like practicing to be a veterinarian kind of thing. <laughs> so, um, you know, fast forward, uh, get out of high school. Um, I become a, a, a dad at 19 going on 20 um, and all dreams of college kind of went away and it was just work, 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 work. And, uh, and I worked in the restaurant industry. And so I spent, you know, 20 some odd years in the restaurant industry. You know, I started out as a dishwasher many years ago, worked my way up to a cook, to a chef, to a restaurant <laughs> manager, to executive chef, sous chef. I've had all the titles. Wow. Um, and I love, and I, and I loved it, but it, it wasn't what I wanted to do now, you know, kind of backing up right out of high school. I also started coaching youth football and I coached kids right off the bat. And, and, and I absolutely love it. I coached uh, 11, 12 and 13 year olds for football. They oh. called it like, it was like the B, the B squad and, and the kids were great, right? They're just coming into puberty. They're trying to figure out, um, you know, their, their deep voice, their muscles, you know, all those, you know, all those, those things that are, that are happening with, with young boys at the time. And, um, but also, right. They're, they're also little punks right? You know, they're, they're, <laughs> they're little punks, you know, and, and, you know, they, they argue on the football field, they're mad at this one, they're mad at that one. And, and so being able to help shape and develop the mind was really awesome to me to be able to be a guide and a mentor to that. I just, I, I absolutely loved it. So I did it for about three years uh, in Middletown, Connecticut. And I just, I had such a great time. And then um, I just stepped away just because, you know, life was taking me in, you know, in different directions. And um, after that, uh, I didn't coach for, for a few years. And then um, I moved up to Vermont, uh, probably in the early two or mid 2000s, uh, earlier or earlier 2000s, I should say. 
And um, when my daughter became of age in third grade, I started coaching her in, in girls basketball. I coached her for about four years. Um, then my oldest son and my oldest daughter moved up uh, up here with my wife and I. Um, and then I started coaching my son in football. And I just, you know, again, you know, I, I just love the, the coaching aspect. And so I was coaching a, I started, I, I founded a, through the youth football organization I was working with, I founded a, the summer program where we coached youth for free for, I think it was like for the whole weekend of July. It was like every weekend of July. We just got all the local coaches together that were willing to volunteer their time. And so I did that for about three years also. And somebody had sent a picture or posted a picture to Facebook and they had me in front of um, some kids talking to them. They were all sitting around in a circle and they were talking to them. And I was like pointing and talking and like kind of move. I use my hands a lot when I talk. Uh, yeah, me too. Yeah. And I remember seeing that photo and saying to myself, that's all I want to do. Oh, okay. All I want to do is work with kids now. Yeah. So, so, so how do I do that? And so I, I think I came home to my wife shortly after, I think it was that weekend. And I said, I'm going to quit my job. <laughs> at the restaurant. Words every she, wife wants to hear. Right? Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And I was like, I'm quitting my job. And she's like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, this is what I want to do. She's like, well, well, how are you going to do that? And I was like, I don't, I don't know. Cause I don't know anything about it. So I ended up finding a residential treatment center that was actually down the road. I'd, I'd applied at a couple different places, but I found this residential treatment center that was down the road um, from, from my house, actually okay. uh, not too far. And um, I applied. Um, they gave me the job and I started off as a residential counselor at a, you know, top tier youth residential facility uh, for kids struggling with severe anxiety, depression, uh, OCD, um, some suicidal uh, thoughts, um, and some self-harm. And I just jumped into that body of work. I mean, just absolutely loved it. And as the year, so, so as I started as a residential counselor, I should, I should also mention that I lost probably about uh, $40,000 on my leap to, <laughs> on my oh, leap what? to working with, on my leap to working with youth from the restaurant industry. I mean, oh. it, it just didn't pay, you know, it just okay. didn't pay at all. all right. I think I was making like $11 and 25 cents an hour, you know, with five kids at the time living in the house. And I was like, well, I'll figure it out. That was what I said. I said, I'll figure it out. You know, it'll, this is what I'm meant to do. It'll all work itself out. And, uh, attitude. I, I very much yeah. believe that I very much. You know. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what, I mean, you have to, if it's something that you want to do, you're going to find a way to make it all work. And, 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 and we did, I, uh, worked it for a few years. Uh, my business partner and I met at that time. He was working the back half of the week. I was working the front half of the week and we would get together on Wednesdays and kind of talk about both of our teams and what we could do to make the teams better and how we can have, have make sure the kids had a better experience. One of the things I personally started noticing, or I know I knew right from the get-go was that, you know, it cost 60 to $90,000 for kids to go for 60 to 90 days to this residential center. And 60, what I, what'd you say? 60 to 90,000, 60, 60 to 90,000. Yeah. Per child, for 60 for, to 90 days. Okay. For a residential for, center. For, yeah. For 60 to 90 days. Wow. Wow. So basically a thousand dollars a day. Right. Okay. Oh my goodness. And so I, I said to myself, I'm like, well, you know, I wasn't even making a thousand dollars a week. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, never, yeah. never mind. You know, uh, you know, imagining as a parent myself, a thousand dollars a day for my child to get support if something ever happened to one of my kiddos. So I just kind of started getting this kind of 
this bad taste in my mouth, not this, not because of the work that we were doing was bad, but because we weren't helping more people. It was a very select few, right? And that's the haves. And then you have the have not. One night, James and I sat down, we were having a conversation. I, I said, hey, man, I got this idea. I tell him the idea of, of, of you know, creating a coaching, utilizing a coaching model. Cause at this time I had already become a life coach uh, on my own. And so I said, you know, at this time, you know, I had this idea of utilizing a coaching model to go into schools and support kids. And he's like, Oh, you know, I have a, a similar idea. So we put our heads together and, you know, we are hope was born. <laughs> I mean, that was, that was really it. So that's kind of the, the life and story of, of, you know, where I was, how I got there and, we're at now. Well, yeah, let's talk about the mission of We Are Hope. Now we know the why and uh, your program. Let's get to the meat nuts and bolts, like where you are and how, how it's happening and what your program provides and things like that. Like, uh, yeah, for the. Okay. Yeah. So the, so the mission is to is to make sure that everybody has access to, to mental health supports. Right. I mean, that's just that's just the, the long and short of it. Right. We want to make sure that everybody has affordable access to support. And we do that by one, meeting people where they're at, right? And how do you meet people where they're at? You meet them on their phone, right? Because that's where everybody's at, <laughs> right? So we were one of the very first organizations in the US to be a completely virtual mental health organization. So when we started this company, we were a virtual company. So our very first client was living in Georgia. Then our next client was in Texas and our client after that was in Rhode Island. And, and, you know, we were, you know, we were meeting these kids on their time schedules, worked with our time schedule, and we could meet them any time of the day, any time of the night, um, anywhere that they needed support. So that was the really great thing about it. Uh, we had clients in Connecticut. So we've, we had one of our clients end up going to London. We continued to support, or not London, but somewhere in the UK. And we continued to support over there. So we started we, the idea, again, was to create access to people that didn't typically have access, right, and, and make sure that everybody has it. Um, but then also, how do you make it affordable? What's the best way to afford something? So we have to understand that if you want to make sure that all people have financial access, you have to set it at a price point that is comparable, right, and if not less than what the standard is in our society. And so what we did was James and I um, took a look at the standard um, co-payment, right, for insurance. So the standard co-payment for insurance is, is roughly about $50. So, so what we did was we said, well, that's, it's $50. Um, and if you got a cheaper copay, because I've looked at some other ones, you know, it's like 30. So if you get to the cheapest, you're looking at like a $30 copay for like an office visit, a $30 copay for this. So we're looking and I said, well, if we're seeing people for a half an hour per session, let's use the rate of $17.50. That puts us at $35 an hour, but we're not seeing anybody for an hour. We're seeing them for a half, you know, per half hour session. And that is an affordable, what we believe would be an affordable rate for roughly anybody, right? The masses, so if you're, the masses. Yeah. The masses right? So that's the, the, the virtual kind of private pay coaching model that we have. Now, when we have the in-school model, how do, you, how, or how, do you reach, how do you reach the masses of students? Well, you reach them inside of a building at school. That's where they all are, at least the majority of them that aren't playing hooky, right? Yeah, so <laughs> that was me. <laughs> yeah. For sure. So, at least in junior so, high and high school. So how do you make that affordable to families in school? 
Well, you make sure that the family doesn't have to pay for it. And so our services are virtually free, or I shouldn't say virtually, they are free to a family when we're contracted within that school district or within that specific school, because the school picks up the tab and the family and the child get the services for free. Tell us, uh, walk us through what happens at the school when we are hope. So a, a school contracts with you. And now, now what's, what, what happens from there? So if a school contracts with us, it's typically roughly, it's typically six hours, six hours a day. Um, and we hire the coach, we bring the, we bring the coach in. Um, and that coach is then a lot, is able to see um, 12 students a day. Wow. So they see students for roughly a half an hour every single day for five days a week for roughly 60 to 90 days, depending on the progress of each student. Then we rotate as one student is, is progressing in the program and doing well and they're ready to graduate. Then we start working with our, our, um, whoever our lead is in the building and we get another student into the caseload and it rotates all year. So if you have 12 students on your caseload to start, that may flip three times in 10 months. You might have one or two students that stay on your caseload all 10 months in the school year, right? Because they're just struggling with some other stuff and they need consistent, or they need a, a, you know, consistent support and the school's like, nope, we want you to keep seeing them, which we, we, we get every once in a while at some of our schools. But for the most part, there's a constant rotation every few months of new students coming in. That contract that says that we're supporting 12 students at a time then turns into 46 students for the year. Wow. In one, in one school. Think about the impact that has in a community. When you're there within that community over time and you're supporting 46 students individually this, you know, in this one year, they're getting five days of support for half an hour every day. And then all those other students that have higher needs that need a school psychologist and this one and that one, they're actually able to get those services more frequently or they're more, they're, they're re they're more readily available because other students with minor things aren't tying those individuals up to support them. Oh, interesting. So we, yeah, so we are a, we, we consider ourselves an organization that, that goes into schools and fills in the gap. Right. We know that there's a huge gap between school counselor, school social worker, right, and school psychiatrist or clinician or whatever. They can only see so many people. We can see more students individually in a year than any one of them can. And we can and we continue to do that. We see a student more in a year. I'm sorry. We see a student more in three months than a therapist would ever see them in an entire 12 months. And that's why we chose the life coaching model because it allows us that freedom and flexibility to be able to see a student once a week or seven times a week. And there's no restriction to it because it's all about coaching that individual through the struggles that they're struggling with. Let's talk about like the broken, how it's broken now and how, how yours is different than the traditional model or like how they, I think there was an emphasis on how what, what's currently, what's, what's often done is they look at the bad behavior. Yes. Punish. Yeah, right. Like they, there was a few episodes that mentioned like a kid putting his head on the desk. So let's talk about how your approach is different with the life coaching and the why behind the why and things like that. Right. I thought that was very so, interesting. So our, the, the idea of the work that we do is to get 
people to stop looking at behavior and start looking at what's behind the behavior. What we have to understand, Janice, is that behavior is language. All behavior is language. Mm. It's, it's, it's constantly telling us something. And what we're finding is that those people that are hired in the school aren't hired to decipher language. They're hired to teach, right? And so when, when, a, when an educator is, is, is in the building and, a, and a, a kiddo is cursing them out or throwing a desk or some kind of negative behavior of some kind, they're only addressing that behavior because we have to remember that behavior to the adult in the building <laughs> is making them feel uncomfortable. Sure. Right. It's yeah. bringing up their anxieties and their worst fears and all these other things. And so what we try to do is slow the educator down, allow them to look at the behavior through a different lens. Yes, that child, you know, mocking this other child is most definitely annoying. I think we can all agree on that. But the question might be, why is that child mocking that other child, right? That child who cursed you out in class is definitely and most definitely disrespectful. But the question is, why did that child curse you out in the middle of class, right? Because until you find out why they've done it and what's causing that specific behavior, then it will never stop, right? So one of the things in CBT work, cognitive behavioral therapy work that we do, and again, we're not therapists, but we use the techniques of CBT, which we are allowed to do, right? Anybody can use them. There's no rule that only therapists can use them. Um, we understand that thoughts create emotions which impact or influence our behavior. So remember I said that we see students because of behavior. So what we do is we work backwards from the behavior. So what that might look like is student threw a desk. The question is not why did you throw the desk? Yeah. The question is what were you feeling before throwing the desk? Because the, the, the desk throwing was the behavioral outcome to the emotion, right? So I was feeling this. Now, what was the original thought that you had that made you feel this? Well, I was thinking about this. So then if we can support them and work with them to identify a new train of thinking and a new way to perceive that original thought, then by changing the thought process, we can then invoke a new emotional state thereby changing the overall behavioral outcome. And right. so that's the work that we do. So let's talk about like at what age, the earliest is it, I think, was it preschool or kindergarten? No, so we do K through 12. K we through don't 12. work with many kindergartners. There are a few here and there that come through, but normally it starts about first grade. Um, okay. We start working with kiddos. Um, like I said, every once in a while, we'll get a kindergartner and that's more for just like, standard support for the student as a whole. Um, and we, we, we do teach them some skills and, and things like that. And excuse me, we have, we've, we've now taken on a, a new program called, excuse me, Pathways to Empower, which is a neuroscience-based mental health educational platform, which because of the artistry within the program and the way that it's broken down, we're able to use it so that we can teach kids at a much younger age. So for instance, um, the amygdala is considered the glowworm part of the brain, right? The prefrontal cortex is considered um, 
the uh, the dragonfly part of the brain, right? So each part of the brain has a specific little insect that uh, is attributed to it, which makes it relatable to, to kids that we can then teach them how to like what's happening in the moment when they're feeling a certain way. Um, let's talk about how you how you're funded. Um, we have not ever really applied for grants. That was not the way that we wanted to be funded. It's not the way that we want to run the organization. And the reason that we don't run the organization that way and the reason that we don't want to run the organization that way is because typically when you're given grants from anybody, for the most part, there are always strings attached. Oh. And what I mean by that, what I mean by that is um, you can only serve females nine to 14. You can only yeah. serve males, da, 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 da. You can serve only serve LGBTQ. You can only serve black males, white males, this, right? Whatever the case may be, there's always something. And so I didn't want to get into this piece where we're hiring a grants manager to manage who we are serving and then us trying to manage who, who we can and cannot serve. That's not the purpose of who we are. The idea of who we are is to make sure that everyone has access, not who the grantor says has access. Okay. And it defeats the purpose of organizations. So what we do is we partner with the school and the school schools use either local funds, right, within their budget. They use their own grant funds that they get. So then we're not on the hook for who we can and can't serve. That's already taken care of. They just say, here's, you know, this is what we have in our grant pool. They use the COVID relief funds as of recently, as of late rather. And um, we use what are called uh, Medicaid title funds. So title one and title four. So schools generate revenue through their Medicaid funding. So how many special ed services they have, all of these things. And when those funds are generated, that special education money that's generated doesn't go back into special education. It goes back into actually preventative care, which we fall under. So then that's how we're paid. Title one, title four. And I just heard the other day that we could fall under title three, I believe somebody else said. So there's all these different funding streams that schools have access to where schools generate money based on specific services that they use is my understanding. Um, and then when, that, when that's generated, it can be used for a specific thing. Are these funds available to all public schools throughout the country? Just yes. rural, like yes. your rural area? Because it sounds like you're in rural, rural Vermont. Yeah, these these funds are 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 available to all public schools that I know of that are either a Title I school, right? Which is which is impoverished in some to some degree, right? Have below poverty level, Title Four. And I'm not sure what Title III is. I just learned about it the other day, but I was at a school down in Arkansas and he said, oh yeah, you could use Title III too. And I was like, okay, great. I didn't know about Title III, but okay. <laughs> so I'm, you know, I'm constantly learning also, you know, as, as, we go, as we go through this journey. But like I said, you know, we fall under prevention. You know, we are a preventative service. The idea of our work is to, is so there are tier one, tier two, and tier threes in schools, right? And, and the MTSS system, multi-tiered levels of support system that schools have. And so we fall under tier two support. So the idea is to make sure that these students don't struggle more than they're already struggling. So our, our, the idea is for us to reduce it. So we're, again, we fall under that prevention, that prevention guideline to make sure that students have access before things can become really difficult for them. And uh, how many schools are you in at this point and how much staff do you have? We're in 14 schools currently because we had 11 and then we got five in the middle of the year. Vermont, uh, New Hampshire, and Arkansas. We have 14 schools out of those three states. And we, I just 
today sent a proposal to a school in Connecticut, which um, they reached out to me again for the second time. So that's looking pretty good. So it looks like we may get another middle school in Connecticut. So that would be 15 schools. Um, and wow. we have um, 14 staff members, I believe. So the contract comes through We Are Hope. Okay. We hire our coaches as independent contractors. Yeah. And then we pay our coaches from the funds that we receive. Uh, are there any volunteers or opportunities? And, and if there were, what, what would they be? Or is, is it not really something that people can volunteer with at this point? Yeah. So when it comes to our coaching work, there's really nothing anybody can do in, in regards to volunteering because all of our coaches are, have to be vetted. They have to get fingerprinted so they can even be allowed in the school, oh, you know, wow. all this, right. All the, all this stuff. Right. Um, so I get asked all the time, like, oh, can we volunteer? And maybe I can go into the school and help them. I'm like, nope, we can't do that. Sorry. Oh, I never even, those things wouldn't have crossed Yeah. Mind. So for like volunteer stuff, you know, we can always use people to help out because we are doing some grant work now. But like the, the grants that we're receiving now are more for general funds, which are the ones that I would prefer to get because then we can use those resources for whatever we're doing. So um, the only volunteers that we really need would be for our what's called the Upper Valley Youth Wellness Retreat, which is our three-week youth wellness retreat that we host up here um, four, days, four days a week for three weeks. Uh, it's the only retreat of its kind in, in, in New England that I'm aware of to, to the specific level of what we do as far as uh, youth mental health education um, and overall youth wellness. And so we could always use help and support there, right? We could always use an extra counselor or somebody to, to help support, or an extra coach, somebody to help support that. But other than that, we would, you know, Someone who, if someone wanted to help out with media and things like that, we're all, you know, I'm always like, yes, please. If you, if you know how to do it, yeah, please help out. Right. Marketing. Um, writing grant. Yeah. Marketing and grant writers and things like that. Like I would always welcome help for that, but no one ever is offering that help. <laughs> so, not yet. Not yet. Not, not yet. Not yet. Not yeah. Yet. We'll say that. Not yet. I love the phrase emotional CPR. Let's talk about yeah. that. I, I guess and what it is and, um, I think there was a national empowerment center and, and I guess they're yeah. the ones who train everybody. So let's talk about that. If there's time in wraparound services, sure. that, that was a term I had never heard of. And then you also mentioned racial, racial isolation. So I guess I'm kind of coming back, but let's. So emotional, yeah. So emotional CPR is the modality um, that was designed and developed uh, by Dr. Daniel Fisher and a cohort of individuals of, with lived experience, right? Those who, but struggle, struggle with significant mental health issues at some point in their life, psychosis possibly, um, or have been, have been in the mental health care system um, and hospitalized. And so um, I met Dr. Fisher via um, another colleague that I met at a, another event. They've connected us and it's been kind of, you know, we hit the ground running after that, if that makes sense. So um, through, through Dr. Fisher, I met uh, Oritz Cohen, who is now the new CEO of the National Empowerment Center and has also since come on as a director of our board of directors. Um, so there's a very tight knit, you know, community there um, with that. Emotional CPR is a modality that teaches the layperson how to support themselves and another human being who may be struggling with an emotional crisis, right? How do we connect empower and revitalize not only ourselves, but others while in the midst of an emotional crisis. And so um, the three phases, connect, empower, revitalize, the C, the P, and the R. 
Um, it's a, it's a, it's a two day, you know, in-person training or a four day, you know, virtual training or however, you know, it's done. It really kind of depends. And it's a way for us, Janice, to learn how to get back to the basics of humanity. Right. And that's what I really love about it. It is how do we connect with each other on a heart to heart level? How do I connect with what I'm feeling first? right? And recognize, learning how to recognize my emotional state so that I can then support you if need be. And what I've learned through, through, through this practice and through this modality is that it's not just the training. It is legit a way of being, a way of life, a way in which I interact with all people, right? I connect with what I'm feeling during a moment of, of, of connection, right? Um, but what we also have to understand is that we cannot reach connection with any other person if we're not willing to be vulnerable first. What I've also learned is that we cannot be vulnerable if we're not willing to work through our shame and guilt first. <laughs> Does that make sense? So there is this entire process that needs to happen. So when I started doing emotional CPR was connect and power revitalize. And then I became a co-author of youth emotional CPR and one of the co-writers of youth emotional CPR. And as I started teaching it to youth, um, which by the way, I was one of the, I was, I was the first to ever teach it to you to bring emotional CPR to youth. And then we, we had done that, but that's a whole, that's a, that's a longer story. As I started teaching it to youth, what I realized was that youth really struggle to connect inside of a school building because school has this, you know, this, uh, this entire thought process of like, I need to have my guard up and I can't let people know who I am and all this, right. That's what teens, that's how teens are. So what I realized was teens were no different than adults and that the human connection, the human experience around connecting to another human being is never possible unless you're willing to be vulnerable. So I started shifting the training and I started teaching about vulnerability, shame, and guilt in order to even get the connection. You know, there's a, you've probably heard of her. There's a, a, a lady who's gone viral, Dr. Or, or Renee Brown, Brene Brown. Renee Brown, Renee Brown. Yeah. yeah. I first heard about her. On I her use her work. Yeah. I, oh, well that, you know, when I first saw her, I guess her Ted talk, she's a shame researcher. She went viral yep. on a Ted talk. Then now she's got her own shows and podcasts and, it, my first thought was like, shame, I, I don't really have any interest in that. But the more I listen, <laughs> you know, like it, I just, it didn't seem like it was relatable and it seemed kind of strange. Right. But then the more I started listening to her, wow, like it, it's almost like a punch to the stomach because I think yeah, person alive, it feels shame about something, whether it's, I don't Absolutely. know. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, it's and hard that to shame, describe. Yeah. That, that, that shame prevents us, right? from being vulnerable with another person. And that vulnerability prevents us from having true heart-to-heart connection with other people. I would talk about wraparound. I, I heard the term in a couple of the podcasts, wraparound services. What does that relate yeah, to? Yeah, so wraparound services is, is a term that's, that's widely used um, in schools where you, know, you have a student that might be seeing us, um, but the family also needs family therapy. And then maybe mom and dad need individual therapy and that, that kiddo might also need um, a mentor. And so the idea is that not only are they working with us, but we're giving services to really wrap around that, either that entire family or that student individually so that they have, they're fully encompassed 
in support. That's basically what it means. Right, Have you gotten any pushback from like the therapist at the schools kind of feeling like you're encroaching on their turf or are they for the most part supportive? Because I could see that happening. Like, because yeah, it's a great nobody question. Wants, nobody wants to feel like they're well, and, and people often with degrees, like I'm the expert, but from what I can see from my own, I have a family member, a brother who's very sick with schizophrenia and, you know, lot, lots of exposure the last few years to mental illness and every, the thing, even the addiction treatments, things aren't, they're not working the way they are. So I, I would love to know if you've gotten pushback yeah. or, or more, more support and encouragement so, and welcoming because your approach is very yeah. different. It is. My, our approach is very different. And, and, I'll, and I'll tell you this. And, and one thing that you'll probably learn about me as we continue to you know, talk and work together is that I'm a straight shooter. I say what's on my mind and I don't really care what anybody thinks about it. <laughs> right. So first and foremost, that right. Um, yeah, we've gotten we've gotten pushback and, and we've had people, you know, kind of with the who do you think you are kind of attitude. I'm the person that's thinking outside the box. Right. Because the box has consistently proven that it's not working. Because if it was working, right, here's the thing. If it was working, there would be no need for me. If it was working, we wouldn't have a mental health crisis. If it was working, we wouldn't have kids waiting in the ER to see somebody. If it was working, we wouldn't have those, we wouldn't have people who were on bridges or in their home attempting suicide and being shot by police officers because police officers don't know what to do. The reality is, is that the system that is currently set up in place is not working. And what we're saying is we are not the full answer, but we are a piece of the puzzle and we are willing to do the work alongside of anybody, but we will not be shamed because we don't have degrees. Because the last time I checked, I didn't need to have a degree to love another human being. And that's the difference. I've had many friends tell me that their kids express suicidal thoughts and therefore, yes. you know, in a, they're, they're panicking and they try to call somebody to get help. Oh, you got a four month wait there and there's nobody available who right. treats kids or uh, they can be, an, it can be an intimidating environment or they or, or your, or your child is experiencing suicidal thoughts, right? And okay, great. You can come to my office. It's 450 an hour. My child may, my child may or may not take their own lives in that moment. And you're asking me one, if I have insurance and two, telling me that you don't take it and it's 450 an hour. Oh, and by the way, I live under the poverty limit. And so you're, you, what you're telling me is that I need to go to the ER. And then I go to the ER, they put my child on watch right? For X amount of, for 48 hours, was it 48 hours, 72 hour hold. My child then leaves the hospital and takes their own life because that is the data that's out there. That, a, that an individual is more likely after being admitted for a suicide attempt to then come out and take their own life. And, and, and I'm not saying, and, I, and, and you know, I'm, I speak very strongly about this stuff, and I'm not saying that that uh, kids, should, you know, no one should go to the hospital and, and no one should, you know, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that at all. Um, I am suggesting, however, that our system is currently broken and we need to do something about it. We need to take a, 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 a long, hard look at it. And I believe that there are some systems in place where they are starting to take 
a long, hard look at what's currently going on. So it says here, studies indicate that the risk of suicide is higher during the period immediately following discharge from an inpatient psychiatric care than at the time that at any other time in, in the service user's life, Crawford 2004. That's the cited info. So, you know, this is, uh, this is a real problem. And, you know, again, to answer your question, yes, I've had people, it's getting a little bit quieter these days because, you know, we're getting our IRB written, our manuscript, we've been on CNN, you know, we've got the data to back us up. So it's getting a little quieter to me. What matters is the boots on the ground work, making sure that these kids get support. But the message that there is hope and supports out there and that we need to start normalizing the fact that some of us have mental health crises and that it's okay. We need to start normalizing this. And the more that people see it, I love the name of your show, the, your, I'll call it your project. I love the name of your project. I think that, I think that it speaks to us, right? It speaks to what, what's happening right now and that there is a lot of mood swings happening right now, right? You know, there's, there's a lot of crises in this country and especially with COVID happening and people aren't, aren't back yet, you know, emotionally. And we need to be able to bring that to the forefront and let kids of all ages and adults of all ages know that it's okay to not be okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Well, and the yeah. more that we normalize this conversation, the, the, the easier and the more, the, the more people will get support. Well, one thing that really resonated with me as I listened to your podcast too, it's something you brought up racial isolation, how you're in this all white, uh, basically uh, grew up in Connecticut, you moved to Vermont, uh, like in an all white environment. Like I haven't been spent any time on the East coast, maybe New York a few times years ago. Mm -hmm. Well, you remember I said early on that I am almost like a chameleon. Right. And so, you know, it came with its advantages. I learned how to be part of communities that it, sometimes I wasn't welcome in. Right. I learned how to kind of mold myself and, and be able to um, uh, to communicate on levels where, you know, people thought I was one thing because they, they saw it on TV, but that I was able to teach them to look at me for who I am, not the black person that you see on TV. Right. I'm, 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 I'm different. Um, I'm not a character. I'm a real human being. And not all black people are these characters that are written into scripts that you've seen on television. Right. We have feelings. We're normal. Um, and so, right. And so, and, and so, you know, I've really learned to be able to be in any environment and I can thrive just about in any environment. What do you mm. do like to, to maintain a, you know, family work-life balance? So for me, um, too. what are your hobbies? I'm a, yeah. So I'm a little bit, I, I'm I would say I'm probably a little bit different than most people. Um, for one, there's a lot that doesn't bother me. If that makes sense. Okay. Right. I am able to legitimately compartmentalize to the point where, you know, I could I could be working with a child who just told me two seconds ago that they wanted to take their own life to oh. making to, to to making dinner without a without a thought in the world. Wow. Because <laughs> it is it is this is this is where this belongs. Right. It belongs in this box over here to my left. And and that is where that has to stay. And so I've, I've, I think I've always been like that as a kid, right. As a, as a, as a person, like growing up as a kid and, and as a, and as an, and coming into an adult, but I do come home and I'll shut my bedroom door and I'll just watch YouTube or I'll watch TikTok or I'll watch a show. And that is like when I just completely decompress. I don't want to talk about really anything. 
I just want to be just left alone for a little bit to just, just kind of just relax my body. Cause when your body feels good, your mind feels good. And if my body's tense, then I know that I'm emotionally tense. So that's one, you know, that's one thing I do. I ride my motorcycle. Um, I get what on my kind? bike. Are you, are you a dirt got, bike or Harley guy? What, what kind of bike? I'm a Harley guy. I'm okay. a Harley guy. My yeah, brother's a Harley through. guy. <laughs> yeah. I'm a Harley guy. I get on my, my 2019 street glide and just get on the road and go. Um, when I can, I snowboard. I love to be on a mountain by myself. Uh, just get up there and just come down and go. Um, I love the ocean. I love to get on the beach. I love to go on vacation and go to the coast of Maine, stick my toes in the sand. Uh, this year, we're going to Curaçao. Um, I'm getting ready to go to Africa for the first time because we're opening up in uh, Kenya. Um, so that's really exciting. You're opening up We Are Hope? Yes. Yeah. So we partnered with an organization called Mindful African Initiative, and we are we are partnering with them and we're going to be opening up, um, uh, running a pilot in one of the schools there in Nairobi. And uh, we're going to start running We Are Hope in Kenya. That's amazing. How did they hear about you or did you reach out or did they hear about so I trained, So I trained the CEO in emotional CPR and then I personally mentored him. Um, him and I stayed connected and then we started talking about where his company should go and this and that. And then I pitched the We Are Hope idea and he said, oh my gosh, that would be great. So we started working on that and here we are. I am so grateful and humble that you took the time to meet. Thank you so much, Janice. Okay. Have a great time in Africa. Wow. That's Thank like, you. I, I was thinking, let's get you around the country, but boy, you're going global. Big goals. <laughs> yeah, we, right. no, we can, we can do the country too. Let's, let's get that going too. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye, Sean. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks everybody for joining us for another episode of American Mood Swings, where we talk about the brain and all things mental health. Hope to see you next week and please share with your friends. 